everyone, and welcome to Clitastic Chronicles, a pleasure-positive podcast created by smile makers for people with a clitoris. I'm Cecile, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Donna Oriowo. Dr. Donna Oriowo holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a double master's in social work and education for human sexuality, and a PhD in human sexuality. In addition to her impressive academic track record, she has built a Not Right, a sex therapy practice. In her work, Dr. Donna focuses on the mental and sexual health of black women. Today, we talk about mental health. Let's get started. Dr. Donna Oriowo. I'm a sex and relationship therapist in the Washington, D.C. metro area here in the United States. I focus in on working with Black women, especially on issues related to mental health and sexuality, because the two go so far hand in hand. I specifically focus even within there. There's another specific focus, which is around colorism and texturism. So how our skin tones and our hair textures impact our sexuality as well as our mental health. Okay. So that's in a in a nut what I do. Okay, awesome. I was going through um your website and you explained that the foundation of your approach is emotionally focused therapy. So what does that mean exactly? So many people when they talk about mental health, the first thing that we talk about is oh we have problematic thoughts. So we talk about our thoughts and oh we want to change our behaviors. And that sounds great, except that your emotions can oftentimes inform your thoughts and your emotions can also drive your behaviors. So emotionally focused therapy means that we're getting to the essence of what it is that you're feeling. And I like to do, um, there is some somatic work in there, some body work, which basically means that emotions hold space in our bodies, even if we can't remember things, um, because I deal with a lot of trauma. So a lot of times people can't, remember exactly what happened, but they can remember how they felt and where they felt whatever they felt within their bodies. So we ground the work in emotionally focused therapy because emotions inform what we think and what we think informs what we do. And it becomes a beautiful cycle that just keeps giving. So if we start with what we're feeling, then we're better able to gauge how those feelings then interact with our thoughts and interact with our behaviors. So if we add it back in, instead of just saying, let's change up what we think with cognitive behavioral therapy, and let's change up what we do with behavioral therapy, then, and we take it one step back into the emotions, then that means we get a better and more full picture of what's actually going on for a person, as opposed to just picking this piece or that piece. And it's a great transition toward like talking more about mental health and sexuality, because what you've just mentioned It can hold true from taking care of our mental health in other aspects of our life, not necessarily sexuality. So if we bring the focus towards more like how our mental health impacts our sexuality, can you tell us a bit more about the work you do on that specific area? There's so many steps in it. And oftentimes what I'm finding is that we have not explored our emotions enough beyond I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm angry, that I spend more time at the beginning trying to get people to learn the gamut of emotions. 
So number one, I start off every session with a feelings check-in and I, I show them a chart, a feelings chart, so that they're able to pick off a couple of things that they could be feeling. So to get them in that, in the mindset that their emotions matter here and that, you know how like if you're meeting someone maybe on the street in the elevator, wherever they say, Hey, how are you? Oh, and you say, Hey, how are you back? But neither of you actually care. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you, you're just going <laughs> to keep going. So I get them out of that habit and I'm like, Hey, good morning. How are you feeling? And I wait for an answer. And if they answer with their thoughts, I direct them back to their feelings. So what it ends up looking like is first to normalize that feelings are a thing and that they should have them. And then the other piece is sometimes there needs to be some emotive education. So there's not a full gamut of understanding about what emotions are that is not based in so often in sexism. Like a woman can't feel angry because that means that there's a problem. A man can't feel sad because now that means that there's a problem. So expanding the expectations for emotions and letting them know that they are perfectly acceptable, at least in our space, that it is acceptable and required that I'm going to actually be looking for what they're actually feeling. You know, trying to normalize emotions is part of the work, letting them know that it is okay to have emotions and to be able to discuss those emotions. Otherwise, I do spend some time teaching people about emotions. So we'll go over it. We'll go through some exercises where I'm just trying to get them to understand like, okay, here's a scenario. How might somebody feel? Okay, great. You, you picked out the feeling. Now, what might be the thought process with that feeling? And then what might be the behavior that they exhibit because of that feeling? Tell me about a situation that you've been in that is similar to that. So getting them to understand it outside of themselves and then bring it back inside of themselves is part of the process. Because oftentimes we have been taught to separate our feelings. I mean, we're in a world that often talks about, oh, you have to be strong of thought, but oh, don't be emotional. And I'm just like, but emotions are nothing but information. They are just informing you about how you feel about a situation, about something that you heard, about something that you saw. It is, it's there just to let you know. And then what you do with that information is yours. But oftentimes we're saying that we favor logic over emotion when the two, one is not to be favored over the other. They're actually very equal in how they help or hurt your life. So trying to unlearn that piece. So there's a lot of education when it comes to emotions first. And I think when it comes to sexuality, like you mentioned how society can put some standards about accepted emotions or like behaviors. How do you do this work of emotion decrypting in some way to guide people towards having a sexuality that is on their own terms and not on the ones dictated by society? That's a lot of work. (laughs) So um, again, it does end up being that there has to be some relearning undoing because so much of what we get is also then tied to our emotions. Like, how do you feel about your sexuality in general and what people think about your sexuality? How do you imagine that that changes your behavior? So getting them to understand the emotion, thought, and doing process that is even within their sexuality as it relates to their emotions and then getting them to also trust their emotions. So what feels right to you? What feels good and what makes you happy versus 
what other people told you should not make you happy because emotions don't have that value. It's just, it's about you. It's not about them. So a lot of times there's this unlearning. So we do talk about patriarchy. So in a talking about like, okay, so patriarchy dictates that logic over emotion. Then what else does patriarchy dictate as it relates to your sex life? Now, does this thing actually work for you or is it something that feels separate from you? Is it a performance that you have to put on? And how do you feel when you have to put on this performance? Oftentimes people will say they feel anxious. They feel depressed because they can't be completely themselves. They feel low self-esteem because they are having to perform this thing because something is clearly wrong with them, right? So just trying to get them to, to separate that back out that, Nothing is wrong with you because you perform this. You're trying to survive in a patriarchal world. Same thing goes with emotions. There are certain things that people of color do not have access to. Black women, for example, if you're angry, then you become the angry black woman. And that's not something to become. It means that there's this idea that you're angry for no reason at all and that your anger is not justified. So People, and I think just in general, people are scared of anger, especially anger on people of color that they have been working so hard to oppress. But certain people don't have access to it. But anger really just, it tells you that something is wrong, tells you that you may have been hurt, and it is the one that motivates you toward change. Mm -hmm. So anger is my favorite emotion. I love it when they come up in therapy. So when my clients get angry and I start smiling, they'd be like, why are you always smiling? I'm just like, you angry. I like anger. It's my favorite. We're about to do some work now. I can see it. But um, getting them to see all these pieces about how they have been able to have access to certain aspects of their sexuality and their emotions and trying to bridge the gap between those two things while giving them some psychoeducation about then how they are able to present in the world, that's part of the work. And is anger the emotion that you see the most among your patients when you're talking on their relationship to their sexuality and the experience they have of their body? No? No, not anger. Usually there's shame. Shame. Yeah, especially when it comes to their sexuality, they're ashamed. Either ashamed that they are not as sexual as they feel like they should be at this age or ashamed that they haven't had the relationships that they feel they should be in at this age or ashamed that that they like the things that they like, that something is wrong with them and they want it to be fixed. There's a lot of shame. And do you shame, feel like- guilt, and sadness? Shame, guilt, and sadness. Yeah. So is there something that you see in your practice that our experience of sexuality can sometimes be so frustrating or so remote from what we're actually looking in it or carry so much shame, like what you've said, that it can actually lead us to a depressed state. Absolutely. When your sex life is not what you want it to be, when it, um, when it feels like it falls short, when you feel like the relationships you're in fall short, sometimes there's an internalization of that. So now it's I fell short. Instead of this relationship didn't work out, it's I am something that is wrong with this relationship. So it goes from being something that is external to something that is internal. And when it's internalized like that, that's shame. Shame has no real purpose 
you know, it, it makes you feel pretty horrible, but it doesn't actually help you fix anything. Instead, you take it on to mean that something is wrong with you as opposed to maybe something is wrong with the situation. So it can be hard to then access your sexuality when you're feeling so much shame around it. So instead, it's like, well, let me follow what my partner or my partners are wanting to do instead, because there's nothing wrong with them. There is something wrong with me. So you access your sexuality from a place of deficit and trying to fill the deficit through what other people are wanting or require from you, which makes it less yours and more theirs. How do you break that circle? Well, number one, you have to recognize that it's happening. I believe that recognition is always the first step. So trying to identify the cycles that um, clients are in, that's part of the work that we do. Like you notice that when this happens, what happens next? And what happens after that? Oh, I see. Then it feeds back in. So whatever it is, just trying to help them to identify what that loop is, what that loop Mm. looks like. Because usually if you have that loop in your sex life, or even if you have it at work, you probably have it in a bunch of other places, which means that you're then able to more readily identify how that loop shows up in those other places. But, and then we can start to think about, well, what would you want to do instead? How would you want to feel instead? What would you want to think instead? And being able to identify what the initial emotion is. Sometimes it's just like, okay, if this is the initial emotion, where did this come from? Tell me about the origins of this feeling. Tell me about who who made this possible? What made this possible? What would you like to be feeling instead? If you felt this instead, what would happen? So getting into a space where we're breaking down what the cycle is and then building back up in their imaginations what they would like to see happen instead. And because they got to choose what they would like to happen instead, I'm like, all right, cool. How do you imagine we practice this? And normally we have to start with, can you even identify when this cycle happens in real life? So first, like I once had a client who, um, you know, super heavy on the self-doubt, right? So if somebody said, well, you know, you gotta, uh, you gotta do this again, they would just do it again. They didn't think about it. They didn't pause. They would just jump right into it. Getting that person to be able to pause was the first step. Just pause. When someone tells you to go do something, pause. When I ask, I'm not asking you to change your behavior or anything like that. I just want you to pause before you do it. Pause. For them, that was the first step. It means, it meant for them that, oh, I can recognize when this thing is happening now and I can pause. I don't have to jump right into it and, you know, have it be something that's automatic. Yeah. They got to pausing and then at some point they got to challenging the thing that someone was asking them to do. And now they're in a completely different space. They don't do any of that stuff anymore. And I'm just like, see, one step at a time. We pause, then we think about what we would rather do. We pause, we ask someone the question, we give them what we would rather do. And maybe we still do the thing that they told us to do. But at the very least, we paused and we told them what we would rather do. And just getting them into a space where that also felt comfortable because it was very uncomfortable and heightened their anxiety for a time. You mentioned that it can bring us to depression when like the experience of our sexuality is really a struggle. Or like you mentioned that it can also span in other aspects of our lives. 
how do you see in your practice depression and medication that is part of depression treatment impacts sexual health? How does that work together or against each other? There's a myriad of ways that those things can impact one another. So depression, number one, it can it can strip you of your will to even your desire to have sex, to engage sexually with yourself or with partners. For some people, then they feel then anxious. It, it's weird because your your depression can make you feel anxious if your partner has been asking for sex. So then when it seems like they might ask for sex again, now you have a heightened anxiety and you create your excuse and then you plunge deeper into a depression because now you feel like you're messing up your relationship. Mm. So it can cause you to be more distant and to be even harder on yourself. But those that have been on medication, what we found is that for some people, they just lose all interest in sex. They have no libido based off whatever medication that they're on because they don't feel like them. They, they say, they, um, you know, there's this, there's this speak about, well, I feel off. Yeah. And the way that the, the medication is messing with the various neurotransmitters and all that stuff in the brain and in the body, it's messing, it's messing with the body chemistry to make you less depressed, but at the same time, to not have any sexual desire, which is really messed up because believe it or not, that can also make you feel depressed again. That can make you feel anxious again to be on this medication and for it to work in some ways. And then to strip you of your desire. And if you have a partner, the, the guilt that you can feel because you are not wanting to engage with your partner. So what ends up happening is sometimes people just will have sex just to do it, yeah. just for their partner, but not for themselves. They felt no desire, but they're going to put on a performance for their partner. But then they're going to, sometimes they feel resentful that they have to put on this performance. Yeah. So even that too can lead to a deterioration within the, the context of the relationship that they're in. And how do you So address- it almost feels like a no-win situation. Yeah. So how do you break that? How do you address that in your practice when you see someone like going down that negative loop? Well, um, number one, I, num- I try to get a release to speak to their psychiatrist, whoever prescribed the medication, mm-hmm. to see if there's a dosage change or a different medication that we might be able to change or something that could be added in order for them to be able to get the sexual reactions that they're looking for. And, but of course, this is all after I determined that it is just medication-based. That is not because there's some underlying issue within the context of their relationship, but um, trying to figure out like, is there another medication that they could try or something else that we could do that would allow them to feel all the sexiness that they want to feel. Otherwise, sometimes identifying the loop and having a conversation with their partner. So um, to bring their partner into the therapy room if they were not already there and you know, having the conversation like, okay, so this is what this medication has been doing. But this is also what your partner is saying might be helpful that does not change their medication, but something that you could be doing that might help them to feel more sexy, more in the mood, more ready. Because oftentimes I think that sometimes people are very ready to jump into the sex, to have sex, to, to be in the throes of the passion and all that. But there's been no work, no lead up, no preparation, no, no anything. So I remind people that sex to me is like the work you do at your job. You, there's a lot of things you do to prepare just to be there. You know, back when we were allowed to leave the house very regularly, 
You know, you might take a shower. You would pick out clothes that were appropriate for the occasion. You would do your hair. You would make sure that you had all the things that you needed for your work day. Sometimes you get to work, you check your email so that you're prepared with everything that's going on. There's a step-by-step-by-step process that we do to make sure that our minds and bodies are fully engaged in the work process. We do not do the same thing with our sexuality habits and practices. Instead, we're like, well, I feel horny now. Let's have sex. And I'm just like, well, where was your preparation? <laughs> did, you, did you do anything with your body? Did you put anything in your mind? Did you interact with this person in small ways that would also lead up to this? Or did you just think that you could have sex your way into sex? I mean, it doesn't make any yeah. sense. Like making sure that we're building in practices because these things can maybe, they can't like fully counteract medication, but depression, you know, if we're building in systems, it can be helpful. It can help to get somebody in the mood to be like, oh, the house is clean. Okay, I see you looking cute. You got your, you got that thing on that I like. So now I'm visually interested as well. You're engaging with me mentally. Maybe they've been sexting all day to get you in the mindset. And maybe you bring flowers or they bring flowers or, or chocolate or donuts, whatever it is that somebody likes that feels like a sexual aphrodisiac. Maybe you light candles. Maybe you're preparing the room with smells and looks and all this other stuff to get you into a sexual mind space. But a lot of times we don't do that. We're just like, oh, well, you know, let's have sex now. (laughs) So it's about creating like mental framing, but on a big scale so that you put that back into your life, but without the pressure of it's now and here and it has to happen now or it's a failure. Exactly. Okay. And I really you know, like the comparison. Even just <laughs> the comparison you did with the office that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> because there is so much work that goes in, and I yes. just want us to make sure we're putting that work in that other space. Yeah, no, that's so true. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Clitastic Chronicles and found snippets of wisdom that you can apply to your own sexual health. If you like this podcast, share it around with your friends and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're getting your podcast from. This will help us make it easier to find. For more sex positivity, head to our website at smilemakerscollection.com. See you there.